the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll start today with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, who is going to discuss a new report that details the racial disparities that influenced how devastating the COVID-19 pandemic was for black and brown Michiganders. And then we're going to talk with Kimberly Atkins Store, co-host of the podcast Sisters-in-Law, about President Joe Biden's historic nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson, an African-American woman, to join the U.S. Supreme Court. It's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So we're about to hit the two-year mark of the pandemic here in Michigan and, of course, all across the country. And although a lot of us are cautiously hopeful that we may be entering a less severe stage of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's still no question that so many of the inequalities and governmental failures that made the pandemic so bad in the first place still haven't been fixed. If the current pandemic surges back again, or maybe when the next deadly pandemic hits, we're still really vulnerable in a lot of ways. And if we don't learn the right lessons from what happened over the past two years, we're going to be in real trouble again. But here in Michigan, top officials say we did learn some lessons early on in the pandemic, and we did help fix some of the biggest disparities that made the first waves of the pandemic especially devastating. Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist chairs the Michigan COVID-19 Task Force on Racial Disparities, and that group is going to release a new report today that details the way the state responded to these racial disparities and the difference it was able to make. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist joins me now to review that report. Uh, Garland, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, good morning. It's great to be here with you and your listeners as always. Yes. So uh, remind us what the racial disparities looked like during the pandemic, especially in the beginning. And for those of us who live in Detroit, the the largest majority African-American jurisdiction in the state, it, it, it looked different and it was more devastating than it was in many other parts of the state. But but let's go back to that time and talk about how this played out. Absolutely, Stephen. And th- this is important context for this conversation. And just, you know, I'm saying this and, and describing this to you as a Black Detroiter, as someone who lost 27 people to COVID-19 in my own life. This is very real and very personal to me. In the beginning of the pandemic's presence in Michigan, at least when we first uh, detected our cases, Um, we saw a staggering racial disparity. We saw that, you know, while black folks statewide make about 14 percent of the people who who live in Michigan, in the first two months of the pandemic, we accounted for 40 percent of the people who died of COVID-19. So I'm talking March and April into May of of 2020, 40 percent of the people, almost half of the people who passed away from COVID-19 were black Michiganders. Now, the only reason we were able to even track that is because uh, Governor Whitmer, our, our then chief medical executive, Dr. Jonay Caldoun and myself prioritized making sure that we could measure the race and ethnicity of people who tested positive for COVID-19 and who passed away. And so once we had that, those data points, um, we recognized that we needed to act and act quickly because this level of disparity was unacceptable in this pandemic. And so one month after the pandemic started in early April of 2020, the governor via executive order established the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities, and she asked me to be the chair of that effort. And we immediately seated 26 
amazing Michiganders from all walks of life, um, from from racial and ethnic groups across the board, uh, black black Michiganders who worked in healthcare, who worked in labor, youth advocates. Uh, we had representatives from our Native American and indigenous community, Latino community. We had faith leaders who came together to figure out how we could reduce this mortality rate disparity, as well as learn from it to, to reduce other racial disparities when it came to health outcomes. Yeah. So uh, what were the things that we did? What are the things that made a difference in trying to bring that mortality rate in particular uh, down to a to a more reasonable level. Well, I'm proud of the progress that we made um, as a state. You know, this task force worked with every state department and agency and community organizations and partners across the state of Michigan. And what we found is that focusing on this problem enabled us to to make progress. We got to the point um, by doing things like. We distributed via task force initiatives more than 6 million free masks, um, including child size masks. We administered um, more than 24,000 free COVID-19 tests through neighborhood-based community partner organization uh, efforts to have community-based testing sites in uh, places where people of color live all across Detroit and all across the state of Michigan um, to have them in trusted places for people to go get tested and also to go get vaccinated as well. And we also really proud of this innovative program we did in the fall of 2020, where we um, actually funded directly 30 community-based organizations to address different elements of the social determinants of, of of negative health outcomes, including higher susceptibility to contracting or dying from COVID-19. And we saw those organizations make a ton of progress to where at the end of the year, um, Black folks represented less than 3% of the COVID-19 deaths. I mean, to put this in perspective numbers-wise, we were able to reduce the the new COVID-19 cases reported from 176 per every million Black Michiganders to 59 Mm. by the end of 20. We brought the number of probable COVID-19 deaths reported for Black Michiganders from 21, almost 22 per day, to one per day. It shows you that if you focus on a challenge, you can make progress. And we're proud that progress has held even through the surges with Delta and Omicron. Um, and so it's fragile, but we're holding on. Yeah. Uh, I also want to talk about the larger context of all of this. So uh, there were things that could be done during the pandemic to try to address the the disparities that were playing out in the pandemic. But of course, those disparities have real connections to cultural and societal disparities that we've lived with forever. Uh, and, And one of the things that I know you and I have talked about is the importance of pivoting at some point to really dealing with those in a different way. And that's just as critical when you talk about the next surge under COVID-19 or the next pandemic that that comes down the road. Uh, talk a little about that context and how aware the administration is of the need to, to, to start really more aggressively dealing with them. Yes, Stephen. You know, in the in the beginning, the, the task force, we had two charges. The first was to deal with this immediate mortality rate disparity. And then the second one was to connect to longer term, bigger efforts to reduce these disparities when it came to health outcomes and access to opportunity. And we really think that the learnings that we've gotten, and that's what the report describes, the infrastructure put in place, these neighborhood-based um, really public health outposts, um, not just for COVID-19 testing and for COVID vaccinations, but for, but for conversations about how to be healthier. The partnerships with federally qualified health centers that have been funded across the state of Michigan, the mobile testing and vaccination infrastructure that now can be used to, to bring mobile health services directly to hard to reach places. Um, the partnership that we've launched with the Racial Disparities Task Force and Detroit Public Schools to become a direct vaccine provider for COVID-19 vaccines that we announced a couple of weeks ago, that's a foundation for a new relationship between people, uh, the school nurses that are in their neighborhood schools, and the state health department. And we think that these will give us more tools to be able to deal with some of those social determinants when it comes to everything from um, health misinformation to food insecurity and food deserts and lack of food access. And some of the things that we were able to to help um, on the policy level deal with is making... um, is dealing with how, for example, 
ABT and food assistance programs could be more broadly available to buy more types of food, that the limits to those could be lifted due to waivers we, we saw from the federal government so that people would have more access to food and healthy food to be able to live um, healthier lives as Michiganders. So we think this is absolutely a starting point. But one of the things that we've tried to glean from this pandemic are ways that we can save lives, ways that we can reduce poverty, ways that we can connect people to opportunity. And we think this is a um, an important, you know, as you said, pivot point for how the state of Michigan approaches it. And it's frankly put Michigan in a leadership position in the country. Mm. Uh, I'm talking with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist about a new report due out today that will detail the racial disparities that uh, we saw unfold during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so I, I want to talk about also where we are now in places like Detroit, uh, where where we still, I think, have, have some work to do. Um, of course, the pandemic is not as virulent as it once was, but we still don't have the number of people in places like Detroit who have been willing to get the vaccine, uh, get both shots of the Pfizer vaccine or, or one shot of, of, of the J&J, or to get the booster that, uh, that was recommended for, for people last year. That also leaves us with some vulnerability, I think, uh, if there is another COVID surge or if there's another pandemic. Talk about the efforts that still need to be made to make sure that Detroiters do get vaccinated. This is absolutely top of mind, Stephen. You know, look, I, I don't want anybody else to get COVID. I don't want anybody else to die from COVID. And we have tools in the toolbox that are super, super effective. But but straight up, we need more people um, to make the choice to get vaccinated. And one of the big motivations for the partnership that I described between the health department and Detroit Public Schools Community District is that we want to find as many trusted allies in the community, trusted resources, trusted people and institutions to be able to have these conversations one-on-one -on -one with people in the community. And so this school partnership is grounded in the fact that people trust the nurses who work in our schools. And so they can help answer families' questions about why they and their children can take the opportunity to get vaccinated and then literally have that trusted individual who's been trained, who's been authorized to be able to then help them and administer the vaccine directly. And as you know, we have more than 100 Detroit Public Schools Community District schools, and those are, frankly, neighborhood hubs that are available to every person who lives in those neighborhoods. And so as we scale up this program, we started at seven schools and we're going to be branching out very quickly and ramping that up very quickly. Um, that'll be yet another place where people can go where they, they can um, talk with someone who they trust and who they already have a relationship with about this. And we really think that's what it's going to take to continue to move um, move the ball forward in terms of getting more people and particularly uh, more black folks and more people in cities like Detroit vaccinated. And so I, this is really important. This was a priority for the task force to get this stood up. I'm really thankful to the professionals at the health department and, and the district, um, you know, the board for, for helping to make this happen. I think it's going to have an impact. And again, this is about laying a foundation for better health outcomes overall through this first engagement on this conversation about COVID-19. So I know you do have to go, and I, I want to thank you up front for the time today to talk about this. But Jen on Twitter asks whether the governor calling on Detroit and Flint schools to return to in-person during the pandemic, did that disproportionately affect these districts when we were trying to keep things under control? This question about the value of in-person versus virtual, the questions about safety, did we rush I guess, too much to try to get back to in-person. Did that put more families of color in places like Detroit and Flint uh, at risk? Well, let me, let me, let me answer this very personally. So my, my twin third graders are, De are Detroit public schools community district students. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw the challenges of remote learning play out in my own family differently for my twins, mm -hmm. um, you know, my one one of my kids managed it okay. One of my kids really struggled with remote learning, and so um, 
I think it is. I think that there is consensus amongst education professionals and amongst uh, parents and children that in-person learning is the optimal way for kids to be able to get what they need from our education professionals from our schools. Now, having said that, uh, we've worked really hard to make sure that schools had the the tools they need, information, understanding, um, and infrastructure they needed to be able to manage school safely, to be able to. Um, decrease the risk for education professionals and students to the extent that they could. And I think DPSCD has has done the best it can to manage that, and like a lot of districts have. And so I think the calculus um, has been that we want to try to make sure school can happen safely for the ed professionals and the adults. And yes, we wanted that to happen as soon as possible because we were concerned about the unfinished learning happening with kids. And I think what we've seen in, in Detroit public schools specifically is that the district has done its best to manage it as far as sort of outbreaks in the schools. There have been some limited ones that were going in a good direction. And it also is part of the reason why we launched this partnership with the district to give yet another tool to happen directly uh, and directly be available to people, to families, to students right there in their school buildings. That just like the district has scaled up the testing infrastructure, scaling up this ability to administer vaccines is going to help us manage this risk so that kids can be learning in person with that's in a way that's best for them um, and ultimately for our families as well. So, you know, I, I think that we made um, the decision and tried to do so responsibly. And I think that it's going to bear fruit with our children being able to learn in the way that they can learn best. Yeah. Yeah. I promise to let you go after this last question. What do you think of Katanji uh, Brown Jackson being nominated to the Supreme Court? First black woman is what she would be on that, uh, that highest bench in our country. Stephen, I think it's incredible. You know, I, I appreciate uh, President Biden for making a commitment to doing this and then carrying through with it. I think Judge Brown Jackson, um, I'm so uh, drawn to her experience, both as a black woman, but also as a public defender. Mm -hmm. You know, that is something that is so rare to have people with that experience be present on the Supreme Court. And as someone who's led the criminal justice reform efforts for our administration, um, just that perspective and that lens when looking at the law is so important. And I think it's going to lead to more equitable decisions, decisions that are responsive to the needs of more people and more communities. Um, and so I'm, I'm super excited about her nomination. Um, she's someone who's been approved with uh, bipartisan support in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I, I believe that she has a path toward confirmation. And then I'm excited about the history that she will make and the impact that she will have uh, for generations as a Supreme Court justice and, and frankly, giving, you know, my family, my daughters, someone else to look up to uh, at the highest levels of the government here in our country is is important progress for us to make. Yeah. OK, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Everyone, please be safe. When we come back, we are going to talk more about President Joe Biden's nomination of the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm going to talk with the Boston Globe's Kimberly Atkins store about the selection of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. We also going to want to hear what you think of this historic nomination to the Supreme Court. What do you think the GOP reaction will be to this? How easy do you think her confirmation will be? And what kind of justice do you think she'll make on our nation's highest court? Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. For too long, our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. And I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation with a nominee of extraordinary qualifications. That is the voice of President Joe Biden announcing his pick last week for the U.S. Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. For as long as the United States has had a Supreme Court, a black woman has never been nominated for a position on that court. 
Now, some of the reasons for this are pretty obvious. Black Americans, and particularly black women, have been prevented from accessing full citizenship in this country for a really long time. But even after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, even after the end of de jure segregation, this particular group of long-standing Americans have been absolutely overlooked. Simply put, they have frequently been unable to share spaces of power with their white contemporaries. The Biden administration appears to be trying to change that with this recent nomination. And think about this. Think about what year it is. Think about how many justices have sat on the Supreme Court. Is it something we should be proud of to be able to say that we are finally nominating an African-American woman to sit on the nation's highest court? Is it something we should be ashamed of? Is it a moment to reflect on the profound reliance on inequality that has guided the United States since its founding? We want to better understand nominee Jackson, why she was nominated, and the broader political and cultural implications of President Biden's decision. And we've got a wonderful guest with us to be able to do that. Kimberly Atkins-Store is a senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe, a former trial and appellate litigation attorney, and she's the co-host of a pretty wonderful podcast called Sisters-in-Law. Kimberly, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start here. Who is Katanji Brown-Jackson? What's her background? And why is she the person that Joe Biden has decided should be the first African-American woman on the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, Judge Jackson is currently a judge on the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It's a federal appellate court um, where she served since last year. Before that, she spent many years on the federal trial court here in Washington, D.C. She's uh, formerly a defense attorney, uh, as well as uh, spending some time on the Sentencing Commission. Um, she is a graduate of Harvard Law School and uh, grew up in Miami, and Joe Biden nominated her in addition to the fact that she has a long list of qualifications and experience because two years ago he promised on the campaign trail to nominate a black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court to help bring uh, more balance to that court um, demographically and to make it look more like the United States of America and the people uh, who the court's uh, opinions affect. Yeah. So one of the cool things about this nomination, I think, is that if Joe Biden had not selected Katanji Brown-Jackson, he actually had a pretty substantial list of other African-American women who have the kinds of experiences and are in a position to be able to be nominated to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Talk about what this field looked like and how, how impressive it was. It really was. So two things can be uh, true at the same time. It can be true that in many professions, including uh, practicing law and in the judiciary, uh, that there is uh, a lot of inequality in the way that the system looks. When I practiced law, I did not see a lot of other Black women in the courts uh, in Boston or, or New York or elsewhere. Um, that's because of all the systemic barriers that you talked about in your open. But at the same time, despite that, there are many, many women of color, many black women who have overcome those obstacles and um, forged very strong careers within the judiciary. And because of that, the president did have a deep field of candidates to choose from uh, people like another federal court judge, uh, Michelle Childs uh, in South Carolina, uh, people like Leandra Kruger, uh, who is on the California Supreme Court and who served a long time in the U.S. Solicitor General's office here in Washington, D.C., having argued, I believe, more than a dozen cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, you have people like Sherilyn Eiffel of the N uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund and uh, just a, a host of people that reportedly were considered by the president. There was no shortage of candidates, all of them with very strong credentials. And that just that's a, an extra testament to them and their qualifications in that they were able to overcome the obstacles that are before them in a, in a country like the United States of America. 
America and still have, uh, uh, would have been, in, any of them in their own right, would have been um, a qualified candidate for the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. I'm talking with Kimberly Atkins Store, senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe, former litigation uh, specialist, and the co-host of a podcast called Sisters in Law. We're talking about the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson to be the next justice on uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Joe Biden selected her last week. Her confirmation hearings will get started shortly. Right now, they'll be doing a lot of vetting and looking into her past and discussing the things that uh, she's done. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. How do you feel about President Biden's new Supreme Court nomination? Are you excited about the prospect of having an African-American woman on the court, something that hasn't happened in the entire history of the United States? What would that mean to you? Are you somebody who feels like that's a milestone that uh, we should have reached before? Are you somebody who will take inspiration from her presence on the Supreme Court? Uh, and if she is appointed to the court, if she does survive the confirmation process, uh, how do you think her presence will change the court? How do you think it will change the way that the court approaches uh, all kinds of questions that uh, it has approached until now without the influence of an African-American woman. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Kimberly, I want to talk just a little about the court for people who may not be as familiar with it uh, as others. Uh, and I want to start with, with this question. Um, uh, Judge, uh, Judge Jackson sits on the D.C. Circuit, and mm -hmm. a lot of people don't really know what that court is, what it does, or how important it is uh, in, in the judicial system. There are more justices on the Supreme Court who come from the D.C. Circuit than from any of the other uh, appellate circuits, and there's an important reason why that's true. Talk about that significance uh, of her getting the nomination over some of the other possibilities. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons why uh, Judge Jackson may have uh, ultimately been the, the the pick by the president, despite the broad field of talented and qualified candidates. And one is you're you're exactly right that she came from the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit has been seen as sort of um, you know almost the the minor leagues for the Supreme Court right. <laughs> for a very long time. They take on a broad range uh, of issues more um, broad than some of the other federal courts of appeals. And, and just so that the listeners understand, the, the courts of appeals are really where law is made. Mm -hmm. At the trial court, that's where disputes between the parties are brought and litigated. But once you get to the appeals process, that is when these courts begin making rulings that bind others. Um, so for the, the D.C. Circuit, when that decision is made, that decision is law in that jurisdiction. And it's the same at the U.S. Supreme Court. Court. They're really not looking at who wins or loses, but what the law is and, and speaking clearly on that. So she has that experience. She also has the experience of having gone before the Senate to be confirmed three times before, twice as a federal judge and once as a member of the Sen Sentencing Commission. And each time she uh, was confirmed with bipartisan support. So it will be very difficult now for Republicans, particularly those who have already voted in favor of her, to vote against her now. Now, of course, the Supreme Court is a different job than all of those other jobs, and they will have to take that into consideration. But because she's coming from this court where Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia and the Chief Justice all served on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, she's coming from that same place. It makes it a lot harder to vote against her. Yeah. And the experience that that she's had, as you point out, is very similar to the kind of uh, experience she'll have on the Supreme Court. But she also has something that most of the members of the Supreme Court in history have not had. And that's uh, that's her time uh, being a public defender, being yes. somebody who was representing the poorest uh, in our society in the judicial system. Talk about how how distinct that will be 
in in the U.S. Supreme Court. It will be very distinct. As you say, there is no current justice that has that experience as a defense attorney in their background, let alone as a public defender, someone who had been appointed to represent people who did not have the ability to pay for their own legal representation. Not since Thurgood Marshall has the court had someone uh, on the bench with that kind of experience. And this is very important, particularly as the court takes up uh, criminal cases, Mm -hmm. to have that background, to have that understanding about what it's like to defend these cases. Of course, we have other justices, including Sonia Sotomayor, who are former prosecutors. And I think that's the importance of diversity, not just in terms of race and geography, but diversity in terms of background on this court. You have a lot of former federal judges. It's really homogenous (laughs) in that sense. But the kind of uh, experience that they have, and so Judge Jackson uh, was a public defender. She served on the Sentencing Commission, where she dealt with a lot head on with a lot of issues, including things like mass incarceration and ways to address that. So these are the things that she would be bringing to the court, particularly for the criminal docket, that would be really important uh, for everyone to consider um, when these cases come up. Yeah. And I also want to talk about the court itself and the kind of place it is and the kind of place it is even In Washington, I spent five years uh, as a reporter covering the Supreme Court from about 2002 to 2007. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things I remember quite distinctly is how white of a place it was then. Now, again, that's almost 20 years ago, and I haven't been back a whole lot since I left, so I don't want to speak for what the dynamic looks like now. But certainly uh, among the justices, nothing has has changed over that time in terms of uh, racial makeup. But it's it's also the other parts of the court. I I, I can remember many, 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 many days uh, sitting in the courtroom and Clarence Thomas and I were the only people of color in the courtroom. Very seldom would there be a lawyer representing one of the sides in a case who was not a white man or uh, or or a white woman. Even um, uh, the, the the court, even among um, other institutions in Washington, I, f- I always felt was wider than the rest of Washington. So the idea of uh, first of all having two African-American justices on the court is, is novel. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but this idea of an African-American woman, uh, which I would, I would say I, I, I maybe saw three or four uh, in, the, in that five years, uh, African-American women um, participate in anything at the court. I, I just want to take a little time to have you talk about how significant this is just on those, those racial terms. It's extraordinarily significant. And your experience um, was very similar to mine. I I started covering the court, uh, it looks like right after you did, about 2007, Mm -hmm. um, and covered it full time for about a decade uh, and still attend arguments. And it is frequent that I uh, and uh, Justice Thomas are the only black people in the room. They're very, it's very uh, white and very male, mm-hmm. including the Supreme Court bar. Very few women argue before the Supreme Court and even fewer uh, people of color and black folks. It was interesting. It, it calls to mind a memory when uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor was giving a very uh, impassioned dissent in the Michigan affirmative action case from a few years ago, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you remember. Mm-hmm. And I was looking around as somebody, a graduate from Wayne State University, one of the schools involved, and looking even in the press room, in the press alcove, Mm -hmm. and there were only two Black people in the press alcove. And I thought about the fact that I had the opportunity to get my education and to advance and to make it to the point where I was a a practicing attorney and then a journalist covering the highest court in the land, something that very few reporters get to do. Ever, any reporters, right. (laughs) Any reporter gets to do. And I had made it to that point, but looking around the room, I was reminded of all the obstacles that I had to overcome to get there. And hearing the Justice Sotomayor talk about them in real time, I felt like I was experiencing it in real time. And affirmative action, of course, is one of the many 
uh, cases that uh, Judge Brown, if she is to become Justice, I mean, J- Judge Jackson, if she is to become Justice Jackson, will take on. So she will be in that room. And though the court has a 6-3 majority, and I think it's pretty safe to say the outcome of any affirmative action case is fairly <laughs> predetermined yeah. at this point, at least she'll have a voice in that room and be able to bring that experience and that diversity so that the other justices will have to listen and consider it. And perhaps the next time it will be her giving that impassioned dissent. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about Judge Katanji Jackson uh, Brown Jackson and her nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll continue talking about what that will mean if she's confirmed as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Uh, we'll talk about some of the cases that she might have influence over and how she might just change the very dynamic inside the nation's highest court. We'll also get going on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019. Call and tell us how important you think it is that Joe Biden has nominated the first African-American woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you think she will change things there if she's confirmed? What would you like to see changed about uh, the U.S. Supreme Court? You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Kimberly Atkins Store, senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe, former trial and appellate litigation attorney, and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. We are talking about President Joe Biden's pick to be the next U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. She would be the first African American woman to serve on the court, only the third African American in all of U.S. history to serve on the U.S. Court, uh, U.S. Supreme Court. We're talking about what that would mean, what it means for history, what it means for the present, what it means for the future to break down that barrier. Uh, also talking about what it will mean in practical terms, in terms of some of the cases that the U.S. Supreme Court decides. We would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. How do you feel about President Joe Biden's Supreme Court nomination? Are you excited about the prospect of an African-American woman joining the bench for the first time in Washington. What would that mean to you? Would you draw inspiration from that? Uh, What do you think the GOP response is likely to be to uh, Judge Jackson's nomination? Do you think she will be confirmed or not? Uh, Also, give us a call and let us know what you think about the Supreme Court and how you would like to see it change, perhaps. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, I want to uh, take a listen really quick to some of what uh, Judge Jackson said when she was uh, nominated by President Joe Biden last week. If I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. That was Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson talking about her nomination to become the next uh, U.S. Supreme Court justice. Uh, Kim, I I also want to talk about the political context here. Of course, uh, the Senate is split 50-50, which means that uh, uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, has the ability to to give the Democrats the majority if if they need it. Uh, I, I suspect that from the early reactions that I've seen from some Republican senators, that it won't be quite that close, that uh, perhaps uh, because she's familiar to, to many of the senators and because of her incredibly strong qualifications that uh, 
that there there will be some hubbub about this. There always is, but that yeah. this may not be as as partisanly divided a vote as we've seen in in recent years. Yes, Stephen, I think that um, as of now, unless something new is revealed, her chances of being confirmed are very high. Mm -hmm. And I do think that they will come with at least a handful of Republican votes if passed as prologue. There are people like Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina uh, who uh, likes to remind people that he voted in favor of Democratic nominees like Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan uh, because he believes that so long as there's no disqualification that uh, when it comes to the president, to the victor goes the spoils. And one of the spoils is being able to select the Supreme Court justices of their choice. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there may also be some other Republicans who have voted for Jackson in the past, people like Lisa Murkowski, uh, for example, who may also join in. Um, that being said, we're still in a much more uh, politically divided time here in Washington, and that extends to things like uh, presidential nominees, where in the past you had people like, uh, you know, uh, Antonin Scalia, who was confirmed unanimously, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had really big, mm -hmm. big lopsided bipartisan uh, support. More and more in recent years, you see uh, the votes for Supreme Court justices have a, a five on one side and a four on the other. Um, really much more evenly divided in a way that historically has never happened. So I think that will still continue to be the case in maybe, a, you know, a 53, 47 sort of thing. Uh, but I think for um, most things right now in Washington that are split right down the middle 50-50, that that in itself will be a victory. And, and uh, both uh, a Justice uh, Jackson and the president will be able to tout that bipartisan support. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, what's on your mind? Yes, I love the conversation. I, I totally approve of, of, of uh, the new nominee and we need meet more diversity on the Supreme Court. I told you. But does it make a difference to the common man on the street who's trying to make his house payment and make a car payment with the war in Russia? Does it make a difference to him? Harry, hmm. uh, that's a that's a great question, and I think a lot of people wonder about how much what the court does has an effect uh, on on their lives. Uh, Kimberly, I can think of a number a number of things that that really do matter in people's lives that the court takes up. But but I want to give you a chance to talk. First, about uh, about why yeah. the court matters. Yeah, and I understand that it can be hard to explain why the court matters with so many pressing issues that Americans are facing still coming out of the pandemic, dealing with uh, economic issues, concern about the world, uh, as the caller said. But the Supreme Court affects a number of things that affects every American. I mean, for example, just today, the court is hearing arguments uh, on the ability of the executive uh, of the executive branch to carry out um, its wishes, to carry out regulations. Now, that may not seem very important, but this case deals with climate change. Mm -hmm. And if the court rules really reins in the ability of the EPA or other agencies to act to address climate change, it also reins in the ability, it could rein in the ability of other agencies, healthcare agencies to ensure that, um, you know, things like medicine is covered uh, by people's insurers to make sure that their health care and, and their prescriptions are affordable. It can rein in uh, the, the ability of regulators to uh, regulate products that might be dangerous that make it into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Just this one case and the issues involved with uh, administrative law, as dry as that seems, can have a real impact on, on Americans. And that's, you know, leave aside other big things like criminal justice cases that decide whether the, the standards, whether people are free or not, and, and cases that involve access to uh, uh, abortion care and cases that affect voting rights, the ability of people to be able to cast their ballots and and choose who their representatives are. It, it affects every aspect of American life. So if people aren't concerned about the U.S. Supreme Court, they should be. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite kind of reference point, points when I was covering the court for people who would ask about why it it matters was, was was always the ERISA cases, and um, mm -hmm. uh, for people who don't know what ERISA is, it's the Employment Retire Employee Retirement Income Security Act, and it sets minimum standards for things like retirement 
and health plans. And every term, there are a couple of cases that come before the court where they have to decide how to enforce or how the how the, the rest of the government should enforce uh, that law. That affects almost all of us, right? Think yeah. of how many people have privately, um, you know, held uh, retirement or, or health plans. I mean, uh, if you pay attention to the docket at the court, uh, you would see that they're, they're pretty busy often um, managing things like that. And so, um, you know, there are lots of lot. I mean, there, there are lots and lots of things that the court does that affect our everyday life. One of the things that I have lamented for a while is the, the idea that, uh, you know, the court doesn't get covered the way that it used to. Um, and so people know less, I think, about what they're up to and, and what effect it has. But that's about, uh, that's about journalism and <laughs> the struggles mm-hmm. that we've had. Uh, maintaining, uh, you know, press corps uh, at places like the Supreme Court. But, but great question, Harry. And, and, and again, thanks for the call. But let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning. Um, just real quick, going back to the twin towers being knocked down, and the observation came back that it was a failure in imagination. That changed my whole view of looking at history. So when I look at everything about this appointment, I am in favor of. I think it's a great advancement. But as an elderly white male, I fear what the Waccamaw will be back to the, once again, advancement of our African-American brothers and sisters being, being somehow imaginatively countered with something that's bizarre. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you feel like there might be some sort of backlash, I guess, to... The idea of a black woman on the court is that was that right, Dennis? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, Dennis, uh, I really appreciate the call and the, and the comments, uh, Kimberly. The, uh, can't argue with with Dennis's point. I think there there always is backlash to to black advancement. Um, w- Judge Jackson, though, I think is perhaps in somewhat of a unique position to be able to. To fend that off herself, but but also I think um, you know the administration is on such firm ground with this this nomination, and you will see I think Republicans coming out. We've already seen Mitt Romney, Rob Portman, uh, prominent Republicans come out and say, "Hey, look, I think this is a pretty good this is a pretty good pick." So I yeah. I, I don't know. There, but what Dennis is saying is always true. I think that it is. And you've also, uh, despite the, the comments from people like Senator Ron, Romney, you also see folks like Ted Cruz who have said that the mere fact that the president promised uh, to bring this diversity to the court is somehow uh, insulting to mm-hmm. uh, Judge Jackson and other black people. You always see political messaging like that. And I fear that it is true when you do see a major advancement um, so clearly uh, in a way that's meant to address the inequality um, and the lack of representation in our nation, that that does result in resentment, and particularly when that racial resentment is ginned up by politicians for political purposes. We saw the first black president, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. face that, and I think we're still seeing the ripples of that today. Um, so I do expect that to happen, but I think you're also right. I think that Judge Jackson, as a black woman in spaces like the law that have been overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male, has had to learn to navigate that her entire professional life. Mm-hmm. And I think she will continue to do that throughout her confirmation process. And if she is confirmed uh, throughout her tenure as a judge, on the court. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's uh, go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, what's on your mind? I think the president made an excellent choice, and um, I can only uh, say a friend of mine said back in the 80s when President Reagan nominated Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, she said it's almost 200 years uh, overdue, mm-hmm. and in this case, it's more than 200 years overdue. There's also another area of of, uh, work for judges that's sort of lacking on the court, uh, and that's judges who have experience as state court judges. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, I believe, was the last justice to have that experience. In the 19th century, that experience was very common. Uh, In the 20th century, certainly since the Second World War, it's been rare. O'Connor and Brennan. Uh, William Brennan are the only people I can think of who had that experience. 
Yeah. And it would be wonderful yeah. to see more state court uh, judges put on the Supreme Court. Uh, Ed, that's a great point. And it's something that uh, in in legal circles in Washington gets talked about quite quite a bit, that, that lack of practical trial, I guess, experience that, that some – uh, that some justices have as a as a judge. Uh, Kimberly, talk about what what Ed's uh, bringing up here. Yes, I think that that's absolutely true. And and of course, two of the people reportedly on uh, Biden's shortlist, uh, uh, Judge uh, Judge Childs as well as uh, Justice Kruger, do have that uh, state court experience. Um, but yes, just diversity of backgrounds and experience. Period on the court is something that is important. Justice O'Connor was also the last justice to have been an elected official. Mm -hmm. She was formerly an Arizona uh, state lawmaker. Um, And and so all of these experiences are really important for a court that is tasked with interpreting the very laws that legislators pass. Um, So I, and yes, the vast majority of the disputes that are settled in the country are settled in state courts. So that experience is truly important as well. So it would be great to have a court (laughs) that isn't just this Ivy League federal court pipeline and has and draws from a, a number of other places. Yeah. Okay, Kimberly Atkins-Store, it's always great to have you here on the program to talk about uh, things like this, but uh, especially uh, today with Katanji Brown-Jackson. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. And then I'm going to have a conversation with writer Dan Charnas about his new book on Jay Dilla. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>